0: Let's turn now to God's holy and inspired word as we read uh, this morning from 2 Thessalonians, the second letter of Paul to the Thessalonians, chapter two. 2 Thessalonians, chapter two. Let me just say in advance that uh, our text is uh, the first 12 verses, so I'm not gonna be rereading those. After we read this chapter, it takes up most of the chapter, but that will be our focus. And I think the sermon outline gives you an indication why that that is. We'll be covering this whole theme uh, this morning that Paul speaks about here of the coming Antichrist. So that's the first 12 verses, and then we'll read the concluding verses, of course, as well for our scripture lesson. This is the word of the Lord. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ... And our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed. And the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason God will send them strong delusion, that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. We are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father, who has beloved us and Given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. The Lord had His blessing to the reading of His holy word this morning, that it may indeed be made clear to us as we focus here in this passage on the theme, as you notice from the sermon title, the coming Antichrist, and among the various subjects dear people of God, related to the end times and the return of our Savior, I think few garner as much attention sometimes and as much curiosity as the coming of a person called the Antichrist. It's not surprising that many articles and many books have been written about who that person is, what he is like, when he will appear. Indeed, there are some Christians who believe, you know, that the Antichrist may already have been born in the world today, and that the time of his public appearance is just awaiting, maybe only some years away, maybe then, even in our lifetime. In any case, people have always wondered about the Antichrist and his coming, so I thought I would... uh, focus on that subject with you here this morning, because this is the subject course that Paul deals with here in our scripture reading of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. In this chapter, Paul is addressing that whole thought as he's writing this, the second letter to his fellow believers, to the church that he founded, in fact, in the city of Thessalonica. And in these verses, I would say we have the most information as well, although it's mentioned in other parts of Scripture, too, that make reference to the Antichrist, but this is the one that focuses the most on the Antichrist. You notice, however, that the word or the name Antichrist is not even used here in this passage that we read. Rather, it refers to him here by different names. We'll consider some of these, but mainly the man of sin, also called the man of lawlessness. The only place in the Bible which actually uses the word Antichrist is found in the first letter of John, John chapter 2. And there John writes in verse 18, little children is the last hour, and as you've heard that the Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. So John refers to not only the Antichrist, but also, interestingly, to many Antichrists that have come. That's an instructive verse, because it indicates really, that the concept of the Antichrist is simply that that is a person, is someone who is against Christ. Or some say who has taken the position of, or the authority of Christ, taken the place of Christ, or assumed to do so. And John, in in chapter 2, then, of his first letter, is referring actually to many Antichrists, meaning leaders in the church of his time as well, who were denying that Jesus is the Christ and is the Son of God, the divine Son. So that John writes in in that chapter, verse 22, who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. He is Antichrist, who denies the Father and the Son. But also, there is also indication here that there is a certain figure, a certain person who is the Antichrist, John wrote to his readers, as you've heard, that the Antichrist is coming. And that's the person that is also referred to then in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, where he is called the man of sin, or in other translations, the man of lawlessness. I want to consider with you five points in connection with this coming Antichrist on the basis here of our text I've listed them for you in an outline that was inserted in the bulletin so you can follow along and be sure, of course, we cannot be too extensive on each one of these particular points. But the first one that I want to focus on is when. The when this figure or person will make his appearance. You see, Paul wrote about him in our text precisely because the Thessalonian believers had the wrong idea as to the time of the coming of Christ. Paul had to write to them in the first two verses, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, we ask you not to be so soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Now, the the expression, the day of Christ, is literally in the Greek language here, the day of the Lord. And it is a very common expression and phrase in Scripture. It is always a reference to the day when our Lord, Jesus Christ, will return from heaven, will come again. Uh, for instance, in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 2, Paul had written, For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night now some Thessalonian Christians had apparently interpreted that, what Paul had written there, to mean that, that Christ may already have returned, may already be secretly somewhere on earth. And what gave them that idea? Well, some said that God had revealed that to them in a prophecy. Others said that they had heard Paul say this or teach this. Still others claimed to have received a letter from Paul to his, and from his co-workers as to that day of the Lord that, that was now here. But none of that was true, as Paul indicates, as tells them. No, the day of the Lord, the day of Christ's second coming, wasn't here yet. Paul makes clear. It's still future. He writes in verse 3, "...let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition." Notice how Paul indicates there that certain events must occur before Christ returns. And he specifically here cites two events. The falling away must come first, and the man of sin must be revealed. We often refer to uh, these events as signs of the times. Our Lord Jesus himself spoke about such signs in Matthew chapter 24, a chapter called the Mount Olivet Discourse. Jesus there told his disciples about various events that would take place preceding his second coming. To be sure, he also indicated there that no one knows the day or the hour when our Savior will return, not even the Son of Man, he says, even though I'm sure he knows now as the Son of Man exalted at God's right hand, but then he didn't. But at the same time, as Jesus mentioned that, he also gave us certain signs or events that will occur in the last days. Last days which, incidentally, we are living in today. The days between the first and the second coming of Christ are typically called the last days in the New Testament. But these are events that point to the imminent return of our Lord. Things like upheavals in nature, wars and rumors of wars, the preaching of the gospel to all the nations, the appearance of many deceivers or false prophets, and a time of great tribulation and of falling away that will occur. Yes, Jesus indicates that before he returns, there will indeed be a great apostasy. Many will fall away from the true faith. We read in Matthew 24, verse 10, where Jesus says, at that time many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And I think that's what Paul then is also referring to in verse 3 when he speaks of that great falling away that must come before the return of Christ. And that great falling away is connected to another occurrence, namely the revelation of the man of sin. That is the appearance of the Antichrist. That too must happen, indicates Paul, before Christ himself returns. And so when will the Antichrist appear? What's the answer to our question then here? It's, of course, it... uh, it will be before the return of Christ. It has not yet occurred, according, at least in Paul's day, he indicates it had not yet occurred. And, and I believe we can also say in the base of this passage that it will happen rather shortly before the return of our Savior. There's not going to be a long time period between the appearance of the Antichrist and the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we read in verse 8 of our text, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. To me, that suggests it will be a short time, relatively short, after the Antichrist appears and reigns, that Christ himself will appear and destroy him. That brings me to a second point, which is, what will the Antichrist be like? What kind of figure or person will this be? Let's know a few things about him. Verse 3, which we've already read, calls him the man of sin, or also the man of perdition, the son of perdition, rather. And what that indicates is that this is a man. This individual is an individual human being. The Antichrist is not an angel, and the Antichrist is not Satan. He will be under Satan. Verse 9 indicates, it says, the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan. Satan, of course, is his master. But the Antichrist himself will be a human being. Nor, I think, can, should we say that the Antichrist is simply an evil nation or an evil power or an evil empire that will dominate the world, even though that certainly also will happen in the end times. The book of Revelation in chapter 13 makes reference to the beast out of the sea, also a reference uh, to the Antichrist and his empire. But the Antichrist will be the sovereign ruler over that wicked empire that will dominate the earth. He'll be a sovereign over a worldwide empire. Then notice, too, that Paul refers to him as the man of sin, which can also be translated, as I've already indicated, the man of lawlessness. In other translations, that's the way they translate that. Or in verse 8, in fact, he's called a lawless one. And what does that mean? When we hear the word lawlessness, we think immediately, of course, of a situation of anarchy. We think of a condition in a world or nation uh, where there is no law and order. One might think of the land of Haiti at this time, which is controlled by in most parts, by at least in the big cities, by gangs. And the civil authorities have lost control. But you see, anarchy can never exist for long because somebody will appear who will want to assert power. It may be a terrorist leader. It, it may be a warlord. Some person will arise who will in make himself the law. And so the Antichrist is the man of lawlessness not because there will be no laws or rules whatsoever but because... He will be the law. He will be the ruler, the sovereign, and his law, his rule, will totally defy God's laws. In that sense, he is the man of sin. What is sin in essence? Sin is defiance of God's laws. In fact, you may know that the Bible even defines sin in 1 John 3, verse 4, as sin is lawlessness. And so the Antichrist will be a man who places himself above and against all of God's laws. And he will occupy an exalted position of power in the world, which is indicated in verse 4 of our text, which states who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worship, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. And there you have the ultimate nature of the Antichrist indicated. He'll be a man who will claim supreme authority. He will proclaim himself, in fact, to be divine. I am God. And where especially is he going to press that claim? In the temple of God, Paul writes. Where is that? Our fundamentalist brothers, Christians, believe that this refers to a literal temple, that will one day be rebuilt in the city of Jerusalem. They say after the church has been raptured to be with Christ and the temple will be rebuilt by the Jews in their holy city of Jerusalem, then the Antichrist will emerge and he will set up his throne in that temple from which he will then rule over the world. But I do not believe this, the literal temple and its worship That's a feature, really, of course, of the Old Testament age and dispensation. The temple of the New Testament age is not some earthly building. The temple of the New Testament age is the church of Christ, the people of God, wherever they gather, wherever they worship him. And when the Antichrist rules, he will control and dominate the people of God. He will want to be acknowledged, to be worshipped, even in the visible church. And sad to say, most churches then and religions will offer their allegiance to him. In fact, we see much of the happening already in our world even today, in the false churches of the world today. Basically, it is Satan who is in control of the agenda. And only a few will be able then, when the Antichrist comes to resist him, for they will be severely persecuted if they try to do so. And so the Antichrist, the man of sin, will be a very powerful person A world ruler will not only dominate the political affairs of the nations and their economic affairs, but even their religious institutions and activities. They will all be in some way under his control. And well, when I think of that, it, it strikes me that this is not yet the case in our world, at least not in our Western world today, though we're certainly moving in that direction. And more of that in just a moment. But I'm convinced that the Antichrist is still coming. He is still coming. As I indicated a moment ago, his appearance will be at the very end of time. And Satan will be loosed for a season. Just before our Lord Jesus himself returns. And that's also indicated in the next verses of our text, which speak of the fact that the Antichrist's appearance is being restrained. Which is our third point The coming of the Antichrist is being held back. Something is holding him back. Someone is holding him back. Listen to what Paul tells the Thessalonians in verses 5 through 8. Do you not remember that when I was still with you? So he had already mentioned that to them before. I told you these things, and now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. People of God, these these are rather difficult verses to to understand. There have been different interpretations given to these words by sound biblical scholars. What does Paul mean here in those verses? Before I answer that, let's note that the way The way to the appearance of the Antichrist is already being prepared. The road is already being laid for him to come and to ascend to a world throne. Verse 7 states, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Which means that the power and the forces which defy God's laws and work against his kingdom are already present in the world. In fact, I would say they were already present in Paul's day. In Paul's day, Emperor Nero was the th- on the throne of the Roman Empire, the most wicked, notorious emperor Rome ever had, many say. And uh, his laws were totally against God's laws. He was one of those emperors, by the way, who claimed divinity, as others did as well. And so it's not surprising that many Christians considered him to be the Antichrist. He, he was, I would say, he was a, a forerunner, perhaps. Of the Antichrist, but he was not the Antichrist. You see, the power of lawlessness was already at work then and continues to work secretly, mysteriously, underneath in the world even up to this day. How does that power show itself? Well, I think that should be quite clear when we think of the defiance of God's laws as we see it manifested all around us in our culture today, in the personal lives and actions of many, but also in the official acts of governments and even churches. When nations throughout the world have passed laws and courts have declared that homosexual marriages and so on are to be recognized, are to be honored, and even churches are endorsing these positions, that's the power of lawlessness already at work. Yes, the secret power of lawlessness is already evident in all kinds of devious ways as it promotes abortion and gambling and pornography, gay rights and secularism, while that same power is constantly seeking to restrict the religious liberties, the freedoms of expression that God's people have. It's increasingly evident in our own country today where that religious freedom is constantly being assaulted. At the same time, I think it's fair to say that our world is becoming more and more uh, a smaller a smaller a smaller universe a smaller place the world economies are all much more interrelated than ever before the cultures are becoming more and more intertwined and interdependent what is that leading up to it's leading up to the eventual rise of the antichrist and yet something is restraining him and his appearance says our text and what is that I said this is not an easy passage to, to interpret. I, if we knew exactly what Paul had told the Thessalonians themselves when he was among them, we would understand better what he was saying here. But something is holding the Antichrist back. The, and some say, well, it's the power of God's providence, whereby God still controls everything that happens in the world, even all the acts and the sins of men. And who can, who can deny that? God's providence is indeed over all events. Others believe that the reference here is to the Holy Spirit, actually, who is holding back the Antichrist. And others say, well, more specifically, it is the work of the Spirit in the preaching and the proclamation of the gospel. That's holding back the appearance of the Antichrist, because the gospel of Christ must be proclaimed throughout the world before our Savior returns. I think maybe we can combine all of these things. It's our Almighty God Himself who really is holding back the Antichrist. And He is doing it through His own providence, as well as through the power of His Holy Spirit, and by way of the proclamation of the gospel. All these are restraining, as it were, the power of sin and the appearance of the Antichrist. Because in God's plan, according to God's purpose, Christ's truth and His kingdom must be established and his elect must all be gathered in before Jesus Christ returns. And so we're still living in the day of grace. We're still living in a time period where God's word can still go forth throughout the world in many places. I know it's being restricted in many places and hindered, and missionaries themselves may not be able to go in many countries. But the gospel cannot be prevented yet from doing its work and bringing about the conversion of sinners throughout the world today. So God is still restraining sin and Satan. But one day, all these restraints will be removed. Not that God will lose control in any sense, but one day, by his permissive will, he will let the lion out of the cage, Satan himself, from the bottomless pit, and he will permit the Antichrist to rule over the world. <clears throat> Which leads me to my fourth point on this morning. How will the Antichrist make his appearance then on the stage of this world? Well, listen to verses 8 to 10. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one, Is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish. Now, the words used here to describe the coming of the Antichrist are very telling. For one thing, the words revealed and the coming of the lawless one are the same words in the Greek language that are used for the revealing and the coming of Jesus Christ when he returns. And we know that when Christ returns again, when he returns, it will be with power and it will be with glory, says the Bible. And similarly, when the Antichrist appears, when he comes, it will be with power and with glory, connected to his appearance. People will be in awe when they see him. Not that the Antichrist, again, is a, a supernatural being, who descends from the clouds, from the sky. But there will be an overwhelming effect that he will have on the world when he comes to his position of worldwide dominance. You know how how people today, especially in the secular world, can can be totally mesmerized, totally carried away when, for example, a pop star appears on the stage and, and you see how everybody just... Goes crazy, I guess. That's the only word I can think of. Uh, you know, how they totally are mesmerized with all the glitter and all that. And these entertainers perform and they, like they worship them, in effect. Some political rallies and protest marches draw people by the thousands. When the Antichrist appears, he will have an appeal such as no pop star or no politician will be able to match the whole world will adore him and be swayed by him. He will have them in the palm of his hand. Maybe you think it's hard to imagine, but that's the way it's described here. Or probably, you see, because the time, the time that he will come may be a time when, when the world is going through difficult times and, and he will promise to restore the fortunes of the nations. He will lead the world bring it back to power and to to glory. But, of course, he is the one who wants that glory. He will be a charismatic person. And especially the Antichrist will be such an individual that all will honor and worship him because he'll be able to to perform wonders, signs. We read in verse 9, the coming of the lawless is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, lying wonders. The, the expression signs and wonders is a common one in Scripture. It's used, for example, of God's mighty acts, which he performed in the land of Egypt before the Exodus. And uh, you recall some of the henchmen of Pharaoh were also able to perform some of these wonders at first. And you see, when Satan is loose at the end of times, as indicated by the way in Revelation chapter 20, after the millennial period is over and Satan is loosed from his prisons, then indeed we will see wonders. The Antichrist will come and he will be able to do acts that amaze people, that appear to be supernatural by the power of Satan. They will be lying wonders, writes Paul. I, I don't think he means by that fake, fake wonders, fake acts like magicians like to do, but wonders that are intended to deceive the people. And why will the world fall so easily for these wonders? And the reason is indicated in verse 11 of our text. It says, and for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. Why will millions believe the lie? Verse 10 says, because they do not love God's truth. They've rejected God. They have totally turned away from any recognition of God They will perish in their sin, and God will delude their minds even more to believe whatever the Antichrist does and says. But what will that mean for us as Christians, or Christians who will be living in that time? Well, it will be very hard to resist and oppose the Antichrist. Christians, indeed, will fall away by the thousands, nominal Christians. And those who remain true and faithful will be severely... Persecuted and suffer even to death. All who have submitted to the Antichrist will have to submit to him and worship him, and those who will not will indeed pay the penalty of death. It will be a very difficult time. Many will be martyred in that period of time. That's when the great tribulation that, Matthew, that Jesus talked about in Matthew 24 will appear on the church, when only a small remnant of believers will remain. And Jesus even says in that passage that if these days had not been shortened, it was not, no one would survive, but for the sake of the elect, they will be shortened. And there, there is, in that sense, there is a warning there, but there's also great comfort in what Jesus said there. He says the rule of the Antichrist will be shortened. It will come to an end. It will come to a swift end. And so let me, fifthly and lastly this morning, focus on the end of the Antichrist's reign. What will happen to this man of sin and lawlessness? Another name given to him in our text, verse 3, is the son of perdition. And the word perdition means destruction, ultimate destruction. It's the word used for the destruction of hell itself. And how will that happen? That The Antichrist will suffer perdition. Well, a far mightier person will appear on the clouds of the sky who will challenge him and challenge his claims to be God. One will appear who is indeed the true God, the Son of God, the Divine One. He will appear and return to this earth. And what will this mighty returning Lord Jesus Christ do? Listen again to verse 8. Then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will consume. With the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. What an ending for the Antichrist and all his followers. And yes, for the devil himself in that time, who is the power behind them. They'll be overthrown, it says, by the fiery breath of God's mouth, of his wrath. He will burn them as stubble when he returns Indeed, he will destroy them forever when he returns in brilliant majesty. What an ending it will be for the Antichrist, the devil, and all aligned with them. And what an assurance it will be for God's people. My focus, of course, has been on the Antichrist this morning, but I want to end this morning by focusing our eyes not on him, but on the glorious Christ our Savior, and that we can rejoice and put all our faith and hope in Him fully. He is our sovereign Lord, and He is indeed coming to complete our salvation as the mighty conqueror over all His and all of our enemies. He will come to purify and to glorify His people, that they might be more than conquerors through Him who loves us. That's our hope. That's our encouragement. I ended our scripture reading this morning with verses 13 to 16 of our chapter, chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians. They are marvelous verses of encouragement to urge us to stand fast and true in our faith in Christ and in his word, knowing that God, says Paul, who has loved us from eternity, he has elected us from eternity to receive salvation. And ultimately, then also to receive glory. Indeed, we can be thankful to this God for all the promises that we can hold on to in our life even today. Those who suffer with Christ will be glorified with Him. That's our hope. That's the comfort of the gospel. Is that your hope? Is that your assurance? Is that your conviction? Let's not be afraid of the Antichrist who is to come. But let's have a firm faith that remains true and strong in our Lord Jesus Christ and serve and honor Him who is the King of all glory. Paul ends with a marvelous benediction in chapter 2. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and our God and Father who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we are grateful, even as we have been reminded again through your word and by your Spirit of things that are, indeed, earth-shaking, that do tend to create great fear and trepidation in the hearts of those who take them seriously. And yet, Lord, we thank you that thereby you have revealed to us your glorious victory over the Antichrist and over Satan himself and all the forces aligned with them. We're so thankful to know, Lord Jesus Christ, that even though these days are coming upon the church and upon the world, in times to come, we don't know when that will happen. We thank you that your hand is still restraining the appearance of that man of sin, But we pray that you will allow your word to still go forward into many places, into many lands of the world today, to bring many into your kingdom, those whom you've already elected to eternal life. And we ask that you will grant that your people may remain faithful and true in their daily walk of life, knowing, O Lord Jesus Christ, that you are the conquering Lord, that you indeed will one day return again in all power and glory to defeat all your foes and our foes, and to establish your eternal kingdom. Oh, may we rejoice in that hope and that comfort. We ask it in Jesus' name alone. Amen.